0: I'm Gregory Berg. The following Morning Show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2006. It's an examination of some of the leading voices on public radio at the time. Some of those voices are no longer with us. Many of the programs mentioned are no longer with us. But I think this is still a valuable interview to hear again. I hope you enjoy it. Well, this is a a rare delight indeed today on the morning show. I'm speaking with Lisa A. Phillips, who uh, has a long career in uh, public radio, uh, is a teacher of journalism at State University of New York, and uh, she has just written a wonderful book called Public Radio, Behind the Voices. And in it, uh, Lisa Phillips uh, introduces us to... uh, Many of the names that are so familiar to us, the names and the voices, uh, people like Susan Stanberg and uh, Noah Adams and others who have long been uh, uh, central figures in public radio, and also relative newcomers uh, about whom you might know very little, or if, if anything at all. I mean, people like Melissa Block or Juan Williams or Jackie Leiden. I mean, these are names that are familiar to any of us who work in public radio or, or listen to it Uh, but this is an opportunity to know a little more about who these people are, what makes them tick, and what has drawn them into the world of public radio. And uh, this excellent book uh, has just been released by CDS Books, and Lisa A. Phillips joins us for the next few minutes to uh, talk about the experience of putting this book together and of getting to know uh, some of the uh, voices uh, behind public radio. Lisa A. Phillips, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I wonder if you would relate to our listeners at least an abridged version of this really nice uh, story that you tell, I think, in the introduction to the book, giving us a little taste of how you first uh, became a part of public radio yourself at a small little station somewhere in Iowa, if I remember.
1: Yes, Fort Dodge, Iowa, which is in north central iowa which is in the middle of nowhere basically it's one of the least densely populated areas of the country and i started out there as news director in 1992 that was my first full-time on-air job in public radio and um soon into the job i I had a vacation and i took a two-day train ride to new york city and i'm from the northeast i was in a sense going back home And what I found was on that train trip, I'd wander around the dining car, you know, making conversation with people, and um, as soon as I said I worked in public radio, they just peppered me with questions. They wanted to know about what Terry Gross was like and what Bob Edwards was like and and all kinds of people that that they listened to and wanted to know a little bit more about. And so I answered as best I could. I had heard a few things here and there in the industry, Um, but... The main thing I thought was, wow, there's something really intense going on here. There's, there's a connection that runs much deeper than, okay, I'm going to go listen to the person who gives me my morning news. It, it's a relationship, really. And so I think at that point, for the first time, I thought, maybe there's a book in this. Uh, maybe there's a way to satisfy people's curiosity about the voices that they hear. Um, now, fast forward 10 years later, and I'm still thinking, I'm, I'm still in the industry, and I'm still thinking... There's a book in this, and finally, I start to look into it and to research it, and then ultimately to do my interviews and to write the book.
0: I think you speak so perceptive.ly In that introduction, about um, the this the strong connection you were just talking about between listener and uh, and 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 the voices of, of of the radio, be it public radio or whatever it might be. And I think at one point you refer to the fact that when we don't have A visible image to overwhelm us as you as you place it we end up connecting on sort of a different level or in a in a slightly different way and and it certainly is a powerful connection indeed
1: yeah I think that we do in this day and age a lot of our radio listening alone we're in our cars we're cooking we're in the bathtub and um, that Because it's just voices, we almost treat it a little bit like a telephone conversation. We uh, talk back, in a sense. We we emote. I mean, I've cried on many occasions and laughed on many, many occasions while listening to the radio. And um, it feels a little bit more personal than some of our other media outlets, of course, like TV. Um, So it it is a a very, um, I guess, a very unique connection that, that we have with the voices on the radio and I think that's why public radio has become such a powerful presence in, in people's
0: minds. Well, and you talk about how one of the reasons for this book is this, as you call it, veil of invisibility. Uh, the fact that, that because we we aren't seeing Linda Wertheimer on a regular basis, only hearing her voice, that, that leaves us, in, in a sense, hungry, uh, not only to maybe see what she looks like, but to just know a bit more about her i mean we're hungrier for that than we are about let's say knowing more about katie couric or somebody like that i mean yeah
1: because we see her you know we know what she's wearing every day um we don't know those things about the people in public radio we don't know what they look like um unless we've we've bothered to find out on the web or or in some other uh, space um and so Yes, there's that sense that because something is held back, the curiosity is inspired. It's like if you've ever had a relationship only through letters or email or the internet or on the telephone, you don't really feel like it's uh, moving forward at a certain point unless you see the person and, and know a lot more about them. So in this book, uh, you're not meeting face-to-face, obviously, but you there are photos and there's a chance to Experience something of the person's life off the air.
0: How did you go about putting this book together? Uh, I mean, it probably wasn't terribly difficult for you to come up with a list of important people in public radio. Uh, well,
1: actually, it was difficult. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it, it, of course, in, in many ways, it's many of the people in the book, they're obvious. They're the people we listen to every day. They're the, the shows with the, the largest audiences. Um, but it was hard to know where to draw the line. Um, I revisited that question over and over again as I went through the writing of this book. Uh, you know, there are programs, there, are, there could be at least 100 people in this book, uh, but I had to, to choose, and ultimately I came up with a rough formula of uh, the voices that would have the largest audience, the voices of the, the shows we listen to the most, Uh, I wanted to get a diversity of voices in, so doing some of the music programming, some of the talk and entertainment programming, in addition to the news programming. And I also thought about the people who touched me the most deeply, the people that I felt connected to their audiences in a special way, or the people who were significant historically. Someone like Nina Totenberg isn't hosting a show. She's on All Things Considered quite often, her place in history, not only of public broadcasting, but of, of journalism and even American history, uh, because of her role in the uh, Anita Hill story of the early 90s, um, she's somebody who really needed to be in the book. So I had to look at all those factors and, and came up somehow with 43 people. And I still ponder, you know, what if I'd left that person in or taken that person out? It, it was a very difficult decision to
0: make. Well, and it's interesting, too. Uh, it not occurred to me till just now, but uh, by making this list as you did, you're also, I suppose, leaving out of the equation uh, probably most of the people who make the most important decisions behind the scenes about yeah, what public radio is like. Uh, and yet <laughs> that would have been a, a still longer book if you had tried to include those kind of figures.
1: Yeah, I think that that is a different book. And I think also there's the issue of the people who are working with these voices, who are really doing um, a a very good deal of the work, arguably most of the work, of getting um, the shows together and putting it out there. I mean, the voices in this book are the voices that are the most public that are fronting the show, but it's it's really a system of, of thousands of people, including member stations like yours, uh, that system is what makes those shows happen, and what makes—that's the system that makes the magic of those shows.
0: We're speaking with Lisa Phillips about her book *Public Radio Behind the Voices: Profiles of Public Radio's Most Treasured Personalities*. Uh, as we read the book, uh, it becomes evident that not everyone you hoped to uh, talk with uh, made themselves available. And, yes. you know, not, not to dwell on that frustration or disappointment for you, but I do think that's really kind of interesting. And um, I wonder if, if you can give us some sense of just what kept certain people from not being a part of this. I mean, in some cases, probably you don't even really know the answer to that question.
1: Really, in most cases, I don't. Um, there were six people, six people I discuss in this book declined to be interviewed with me and um, a couple of them are, are biggies. Terry Gross said no, Ira Glass said no, and I did not get very detailed explanations as to why. In, in almost all cases, there was one case, Tavis Smiley, who hosted the Tavis Smiley show in PRI. He was simply booked uh, for months and months and months well past my deadline, so I just couldn't fit him in. Um, the other cases, I didn't really get a full explanation, and What I've come to feel is that um, it's a very big leap of faith to trust someone with your personal story, to trust a journalist or writer with your personal story. And I'm feeling very fortunate that 37 out of the 43 did. As for the ones who said no, I can only think that there's something about this particular project that may not have felt comfortable to them. Um, And and that's OK. I can respect that, however disappointing it may be. Um, That said, I I did my research, my homework, attended public appearances, did the best I could to present a sense of the people who um, did not want to be interviewed. Um, And a couple of critics have pointed out those chapters and said, you know, for, for all the disappointment of not being interviewed, these chapters work really well. So I feel fortunate for that. However, of course, I would have rather
0: actually talk to them. No, no question about it. I remember you expressing your disappointment, especially when it comes to Terry Gross, because that is someone you have so deeply admired for so many, many years, as have I. I uh, pursued the possibility of getting an interview with her uh, as her book came out, and apparently she did uh, relatively few interviews. And I remember hearing some years ago during a public radio interconnect that she hates to be interviewed, um and it's kind of ironic because you know here she is making her living interviewing uh and uh, you know in, in a selfish way i feel like i mean the least she can do is be on the other side of the mic once in a while to just to know what that's like but uh, but uh you know some of these people uh that's obviously a, a a step they just don't feel comfortable making yeah
1: and i think also there's this Feeling um, among some of in the industry that it shouldn't ever be about them and who they are. That it's really about the show they put out, the guests that they have on. Um, in Terry Gross's case, at one point in her career, she didn't even want her photo to be taken. Of course, she's had to, to move past that because her photo is out there these days. Um, but uh, and she also talks in her book about the of privacy that she grew up with, that her parents, um, she grew up in Brooklyn in an apartment building, and her parents um, were Jews who lived, they weren't in the Holocaust, but lived through the time of the Holocaust, and I think that that can have an effect on one as far as feeling comfortable being public about one's personal life. Um, So yeah, I know what you mean about thinking, wow, she does this all the time, can't she do this for others? I know she does do some interviews. but maybe it's just, in her case, knowing what she can take on and what she can't and that too many interviews um, is tough for her to do.
0: Well, and I guess it, it the, your point before this, which had not occurred to me, I think is a really good one, the fact that uh, probably the people that listen to public radio and the people that work within public radio are are really glad to be outside of that culture where, where people are poring over the latest color photos of Brad Pitt's baby uh <laughs> and and uh I mean as as though that really should profoundly matter to the rest of us and uh and of course what public radio stands for is is uh is real information given uh in a way that is not not caught up in glitz and glamour and and personal details that are really in fact, beside the point.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's true. And I think what I try to do in this book, I mean, there, there are two ways of thinking about it. One is the person is not the point. And the second is something that um, Diane Reem, who hosts the Diane Reem Show, she brought up to me. She said she's somebody who's, who's talked a lot about herself. She's written a couple of books, discussed her marriage, you know, her, her religion, her upbringing, all kinds of things, her struggle with spasmodic dysphonia, which is a the vocal disorder she's had for a number of years now. And she said she likes to get personal, to tell her personal story, because uh, she thinks that we exist in a society where people have relationships with facades. And she wants to go deeper than that. So there's that side to it, too. What can you, um, what can you share? What can you teach people? What can you, what can you um, create when you open up about your personal life? But that's not for everybody, so um so you know two sides of
0: the coin i suppose I, I suppose this there's not a simple answer to this next question. I'm kind of wondering how big any of these people are in terms of being celebrities mm-hmm. and 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 what one has to do, how many doors you have to knock on in in order to secure an informa- uh, an interview with someone like a like a Nina totenberg for instance i mean uh C- can you give us some sense of that?
1: Oh, sure, yeah. It's, um, basically what happens is you call the public relations person at the organization that you're trying to... to, to I'm sorry, I'm going to start that over. Um, for um, the people who are with National Public Radio in Washington, I basically called NPR. They have a, a public relations staff there. And I talked to someone on that staff and said, I'm doing this book. Here are the people I'd like to talk to. And once um, I was sort of vetted, you know, that they, the people knew there was a book. It was definitely going to be published with the contract and all that. That was really all I needed to get in the door. However, the individual people had say over whether they wanted to talk to me or not. Um, and... So it went at the various other organizations like American Public Media, Public Radio International, and the different member stations that produce um, shows. Um, so it's really just a matter of making that inquiry with a publicist and then going on from there. Um, and then you get your yeses, and then you know, sometimes you get your noes. So it was tough in that um, in certain cases, it took a while to get a final answer, whether that final answer was yes or no. But it wasn't that I was actually trying to get someone like Nina Totenberg to call me back. It was that I was trying to get <laughs> the, the public relations person to, you know, ascertain whether and who would be able to, to
0: talk to me. Well, and I suppose it says a lot about the uh, the 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 rising profile of of NPR and public radio in general that it probably is. A little trickier matter now than it probably was 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, when probably the phone was not ringing off the hook on the desks of most public relations uh, people at a place like NPR.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and who knows how many public relations people they had at the time, one maybe or two. I mean, now there's a staff, I I couldn't give you an exact count, but I think there were were at least six people there when I with
0: doing my interviews. We're going to talk about a couple of specific people, but I wonder uh, one more general question. Uh, Going into a project like this, is it at all worrisome? Was it worrisome to you that uh, you might end up seeing someone you really admired uh, up close and personal and maybe not liking them and then finding yourself in a position of having to write about them honestly? Um, Were you worried about that?
1: Um, I think I was more worried about other things. Um, I was worried about how good of a journalist I would be with them, because they're the best. Um, So that was a bit daunting. Um, Not liking people. You know, I don't know whether I thought about it that way, whether I expected that i'd feel fondness or not um because i i think for me you know these people are my own broadcasting heroes so i didn't think i didn't think about that Hmm. that sounds weird i think i had hope i hoped to establish a good connection that was really the main thing i hoped for
0: well and i guess that's also part of why what we're talking about with public radio is that in i suppose in some ways it's about likability but Likeability is not exactly a, a central tenet uh, in, in the work that these people do. I mean, it, I guess it is on one level in yeah. that you, you really have to have some kind of connection uh, with the listener. Uh, m- maybe I guess that was part of what I was wondering about is uh, it's one thing when, when someone establishes that connection with you uh, over the airwaves, but when you are with that person in a room... Uh, can the connection be something more than that, or maybe something less than that? Sometimes,
1: um, it can vary, absolutely. Um, and I'm trying to think of what else I could say about that. I mean, everybody was gracious; nobody misbehaved. Um, I think that the the closest I ever got, which was not very close, was you know Michael Feldman, you know, asking me to take a sip of his beer, you know, just. Just, but that was just friendly, you know. That was just a friendly thing to do. It was sweet. Um, yeah, you know that you're you're asking an excellent question. I'm not sure I'm giving an excellent
0: answer. No, I think I, I think you're doing just fine. I mean, it. I guess it's it, it's one of those areas of gray. Uh, a, as you were were writing this book, you were writing about journalists, and in in some ways, primarily about the work that they do, and yet obviously, this was a book about more than that. Also about uh, these journalists as as human beings.
1: Yeah, that is what it was about. And I think what I was seeking, you know, when I, my main concern going into those interviews was to get a sense of that person's story, that person's narrative. And I think that's what I worried about more than anything else because, you know, you can list biographical details for anybody. They all have them on their website and, and so forth. Um, but to really give a sense of that person's path in life, you know what makes that person tick, that is a different matter. And that was my main concern. And then everything else was just gravy. You know, if I felt a good connection with that person, that was great. Um, if it wasn't a great connection, but I was still able to get a sense of their story, I walked away pretty happy.
0: Hmm. We're speaking with Lisa A. Phillips about her book, Public Radio, Behind the Voices. You uh, open the book strongly with one of the great legends of public radio, Susan Stamberg. And one of the things that I really appreciate about about this chapter is that I think you help those of us who are a little too young to have been listening to the earliest days of NPR. Uh, you help us better understand, I think, just how revolutionary she was as as a news journalist in the way that she approached what she did. Uh, over the air and you also help us appreciate the courage of those who put her on the air in the first place and kept her there long enough for listeners to become uh, accustomed to a very different way of of doing this
1: yes Susan really does have a terrific story and I think for me you know she started on the air in 1972 I was four so I grew up knowing that women could host nightly news broadcasts Um, She was the first woman to do so, and the first thing she did was she tried to sound like the radio broadcasters she grew up with. She tried to sound like a man. She tried to sound neutral, authoritative, and her boss said, no, 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 Susan, sound like yourself. And then the next thing that happened was she got complaints. I mean, she never heard them. Her boss took it all. He got calls from public radio station managers around the country saying, this is the wrong direction, this is the wrong choice, take her off the air. He stood by her, he didn't take her off the air, and he did not tell her any of this for years and years and years and years. And so he let her become Susan Stamberg, you know, big personality, big laugh, uh, excellent conversationalist, a very natural presence on the air. But unlike, not only in being a woman, unlike anyone around at the time, but also you know, as, a, as a person, as a personality, unlike anyone around at the time. And what happened was that established a kind of spirit at NPR, that it was a network where you could sound like yourself. Um, and many went on to do just that. So I think that her story is extremely important, not only for women, but as far as the sound and the character of national public radio, particularly in its early years.
0: You mentioned the fact that when one listens to Susan Stamberg now, who of course is not a regular host of anything but just a periodic contributor now, uh, you you talk about how there's almost something a bit nostalgic about hearing her pieces now, uh, and not just because she's been there a long time, but because in fact her style on the air is a reflection of those earliest days of NPR and. And NPR is, is a little bit of a different animal now in some respects.
1: Yeah, that's the part two to the story. Um, she herself has said she doesn't think NPR is as quirky as it used to be, and, and she misses that. Um, and I've got to agree with her. I think that the sound has gotten, I can't say, back to that neutral, authoritative male voice of, of mid-century. Um, but it, it's, it isn't as... as Um, I don't know whimsical it's a little more uh, a little less experimental certainly Um, more mainstream absolutely Um, many of NPR's newest hires are from the print world uh, which is great because they're talented journalists but then I think it means something pretty important when someone says radio is what I want to do Mm. you know Susan Stamberg never worked for a newspaper she worked a little bit in the publishing world and in the magazine world but she didn't come up. You know, she she got into broadcasting very early on, and that's what she stuck with. And uh, if you've spent a couple of decades in the print world, you're not necessarily going to know radio. And even the training they do at NPR, which is great, I don't know if that can train you to be a radio person head to toe.
0: Hmm. Your book also, of course, touches on... Uh the relationship between radio and television, and the fact that uh, there'll be certain figures like Daniel Shore, who uh, were on television first and then kind of migrated to radio, or at least in terms of their primary focus, and then other instances of of NPR figures like a Scott Simon uh, attempting the move to television, and uh, with varying degrees of success. Do you recall any particularly insightful? Uh, comparisons which uh, any of them made in terms of how different it is to do television versus radio journalism?
1: Well, Dan Shore puts it really well. He says that, you know, he ultimately has come to prefer radio because radio is, is the medium of the mind, while television is the medium of the senses. Um, and, you know, as we all know, and Dan Shore, I mean, he he's all about the mind. And I think Uh, When he left television, there was a little bit of a feeling of, okay, what happened? Because, you know, he'd he'd ended up leaving CBS in his uh, career and then later leaving CNN, both over disputes over ethical concerns, um, where he kind of stood his ground and and then felt that the the networks weren't quite behind him. Um, And then he, um, but then the result was that he was walking out of a restaurant in Washington, D.C., and somebody kind of caught up with him and said, hey, didn't you used to be Dan Shore? <laughs> and so he said, well, when you're, when you're not on TV anymore, there's this question of whether you exist. Uh, but then, as we all know, he very much exists on national public radio, working uh, through his commentaries to reach our minds, not our senses. Cokie hmm. um, Roberts said that she um, appreciates the way that radio uh, doesn't provide any visual distractions in the way that um, television does. So I think that, and she's somebody who, who remains, um, who does still does some work in television and most of her career worked in both. So, um, so yeah, there, there's a reason why these people stay in radio or have ended up in radio.
0: I'm reminded of, of an interview I, I got to do with Steve Inskeep uh, on his uh, first anniversary as host of uh, Morning Edition, uh, at one point, I asked him a question kind of about this. Uh, I, th- I don't remember now if I, I think I was asking about, you know, wh- why do you choose to do your work uh, in, in radio, uh, a medium without pictures? Uh, I mean, is that ever frustrating for you or, or, or do you see it as a benefit? And he kind of corrected me very politely, he jumped right in. He said, oh, but Greg, radio does have pictures. And he gave as an example a story they did from New Orleans about – uh, the stranded, abandoned pets in New Orleans, and uh, and talked about the the piece which was done and the the recorded sound that you heard of plaintive barking of 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 animals left behind uh, in the wake of that disaster. And he said, you know that that's as powerful a picture as any picture you'll ever see with your eyes. That was a really interesting answer. It really got me thinking about this medium that I've been working in for 20 years. I had not stopped to think about it in that way.
1: Well, you know, it is a really interesting question. I taught a radio reporting class for the first time this semester. And the students came in and I had them write a little bit about, you know, what you got from radio versus what you got from TV. And some of them talked about the way they felt like radio could be incomplete. Pictures kind of confirm what's happening. You know, um, can you fully experience something like 9/11, for example, without actually seeing those towers fall, Um, as opposed to getting a purely spoken account with with perhaps some sound from the scene? Um, A very important question. By the end of the semester, um, I had them listen to the AIDS diary that aired recently on All Things Considered from South Africa, and we sat there and we listened to it together. And then we talked. It was very moving for the students. A number of them were in tears. And, and we talked afterward about how that would have been if that had been on TV. And the ways that we, we ultimately came up with, the ways that we would have been distracted, or at least felt, um, yeah, the ways that we would have been distracted from the poetry of her language and, and the drama of her story, by visual images, especially in Africa, where certain kinds of images have almost become cliched, you know, of the you know, thin AIDS victim walking through a village with very few resources, that kind of thing, in the ways where that's an old story for us. But her words and her way of describing what was happening in her life were completely new and fresh and, and resonant for these students. And, and that was really a wonderful experience, to see them change and to see them come to understand the ways that radio is a visual medium, too, even if it doesn't provide the visual image in the way that television
0: does. Hmm. You spoke with Bob Edwards, and, of course, it must have been very intriguing for you to be speaking with someone who, of course, had such a highly publicized and painful rupture with uh, national public radio. As you put it, the, the, the story ends happily in that he has, I think, in your words, landed well. But you said that he very much remains haunted by by the rupture with, with NPR.
1: Yeah, I can't say, I can't speak for him today at this moment, but I talked to him about a year after he'd left NPR. And um, I describe him as a, as a man who, you know, something similar to a man whose wife has left him. He's gone on, found a new love, but he's still haunted by, hey, wait, what happened there? Um, yeah, well, I think what happened when he left Morning Edition, when he was asked to leave the host job, was, was very painful, I think, both for the network and for Bob. Um, he's now with XM uh, Satellite Radio doing the Bob Edwards Show. He also has a show called Bob Edwards Weekend, which is back on... Um, do you want me to... Uh, there's a huge truck passing. Do you want me to... Uh,
0: I, ju- I just ve- Go ahead, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, should I start from the top of the question?
0: Sure, that'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. Bob Edwards' story was really poignant. Uh, when I talked to him, it had been about a year since the news came down that he would no longer be the host of Morning Edition. Uh, he'd since been hired by XM Satellite Radio, where he does the Bob Edwards Show, which airs every weekday morning, and then he also uh, does Bob Edwards' Weekend, which airs on a number of public radio stations. So he is back on, on public radio in a program distributed by Public Radio International. And so what I found was a guy was really excited about this new world of satellite broadcasting, but still very hurt about what had happened with National Public Radio. Um, I compare him to a man, you know, whose wife has left him, and um He's gone on to find a new love, but he's still wondering, okay, well, why did she go? What happened exactly? Um, and there was this really striking moment in the interview where um, I did what I do at the end of every interview, which is I said, you know, um, is there anything else I should know? And he looked at me and then he said, yeah, there are things you should know and there are things I should know, too. Like, what was the deal? If you ever find out, let me u- let me know like he was asking me what happened at national public radio wow yeah and it was really something because that showed the depth of of his confusion over hmm. what had happened uh, a year later and even that morning he'd been emailing a former colleague saying okay a year's passed. can you please tell me what happened um so it's it it was It was kind of tough. I think, you know, the the people, many of the staff members at NPR now call it Bob Gate, (laughs) what happened with Bob Edwards, (laughs) because it was one of those moments where um, it was a real turning point, I think, in the history of National Public Radio and um, in the life of, of a legendary broadcaster.
0: Well, it certainly said something about what we talked about towards the top of the interview, the powerful connection which people feel for someone like a Bob Edwards and uh, for someone like that seemingly to be summarily dismissed or discarded. Uh, I mean, I, it, it, it's, it's interesting, uh, the, the, the shockwaves that, that emerged from that. Yeah, uh,
1: 30,000 listener emails. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a huge number. And uh, apparently that what, what I hear from insiders is that was not anticipated. Right that they thought this would pass in a couple of weeks.
0: There we go. You spoke to right around 20 uh, important figures from the news arm of, of public radio. I wonder, as you talked with them, what sense did you have of, of them being sort of cut from the same cloth? The perception is of some, and including even some of us that, that work within public radio, that uh, that there still is uh, a certain slant. And I wonder, as you talked to uh, these, these many journalists, I mean, do you have a feeling that very many of them voted for George Bush or believe abortion is murder or, uh, or oppose gay marriage or, I mean, you know, any number of sort of hot-button topics that we might choose? Um, I mean, are they a varied lot in that sort of respect?
1: Um, That's a good question. A a couple of people have broached that with me before, and I will tell you this. I didn't talk to them about politics, Uh, their personal politics for the most part, and I'll tell you the reason for it. As a journalist, um, I don't think it matters. I don't think that should be part of the discussion uh, because basically we should look at their reporting, what they do, and... um, and that's it. Do we feel it's biased one way or the other? That's a point of discussion, certainly. Um, but a journalist's personal politics, I hate those polls they do, those little surveys they do about, like, OK, who in, in a newsroom votes Democrat and who votes Republican. Because if you're a good journalist working in a certain kind of, of mainstream journalism, which I would say National Public Radio, The New York Times, you know, major newspapers, those all subscribe to. Um, people should not be able to tell. Right. And my big, um, one of my biggest concerns is that there are some journalists who serve as, as uh, I don't know if they describe themselves as pundits, but they sit on these, these round tables with other journalists. And, and some of those programs, in particular on Fox News, um, sit them around a table with some very conservative people. And so there's this impression that the NPR People are the token liberals, even if they'll deny it and everybody else will deny it. It's like, well, if you're sitting there in a roundtable situation with known conservatives, what else do you think you're doing there? Um, I think that more than anything, more than our knowing what the personal politics of, you know, a Juan Williams or a Linda Wertheimer are, that is is one of those things that keeps people feeling that NPR is, Quote unquote, you know, left wing or whatever you want to call it. I think national public radio, especially in its coverage of the war, has bent over backwards perhaps too much <laughs> um, to, you know, to chase that grail of neutrality, of objectivity, of hmm. balance.
0: Well, what you not? know, it's interesting. That's, that's of course, one, uh, another potential consequence that we don't really stop to think about is sort of the reverse consequence. That 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 if in fact there is, if if as a group as sort of a culture corporate culture you're sitting, you know one direction or the other off of center, uh, that you you, in your efforts to be fair, you know you once in a while probably make some 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 interesting choices, but you're of course that's
1: exactly it. But of course you're
0: right that an individual journalist, it is absolutely possible and imperative, to be. Fair. One of the bylines of uh, Wisconsin Public Radio, which we're a part of, is uh, we are thorough, we are fair. And, uh, and I, I love both of those, those terms. Um,
1: yeah. Could I add something to yes. that, actually? Uh, you know, another thing that I always like to say as someone who teaches journalism is journalism is by nature a liberal institution. And I don't mean liberal in the way that it's come to mean, which is left-wing, which I think is a very bad um, kind of uh, definition, because liberal is not does not mean left wing. It means open. It means um, you know something that seeks um, the truth. Um, you know it means something that doesn't have uh, restrictions on free speech on the pursuit of that truth. That's liberalism. Um, so what the what the press is and should do is is liberal. You know, as Stephen Colbert puts it, you know the reality has a liberal bias um, because it's about, you know, not stifling. It's about freedom, you know, which is a mantle that both conservatives and progressives embrace. Um, so, you know i think those things often get forgotten in the discussion of like well is npr full of pinkos or not <laughs> um i th- i think that th- those days maybe for the first 10 years but that ended a long time mm-hmm.
0: ago one of the uh examples i like to cite of of one way in which maybe some journalists potentially are are a bit uh biased in a, in in small l, liberal, <laughs> mm-hmm. is uh, I remember many years ago an interview um, Connie Chung did with the mother of Tanya Harding during the wake of that whole scandal. And I remember C- Connie Chung asking Tanya Harding's mother a very pointed question about, uh, did you physically abuse Tanya as she was you know growing up? And Mrs. Harding said, well, I do remember swatting her on the bottom a couple times, and Connie Chung said, so you did physically abuse your daughter. And she replied, I swatted her on the bottom. And, you know, that, that kind of crystallized in a moment, you know, where this can get a little complicated. Because in Connie Chung's mind, spanking your little girl or swatting her on the bottom is physical abuse. And, of course, a lot of people believe that. And other people don't believe that. They would never call it that and would never couch a question in that particular way. It's a, I think it's an example of the way in which where we come from and what we think about things, it can sneak into the picture a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. One question that uh, I think comes up sometimes is uh, public radio and, and NPR in particular in its news and information programming versus its entertainment programming, and we haven't even scratched the surface of all of these figures with whom you speak uh, and, and examined for, for your book, but they are a wonderfully varied group, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they really are. I, I really enjoyed those interviews a lot. They were a little more laid back, and, and that was a lot of fun.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, do, do you want me to mention some of the people who are in, in that? Yeah, please do.
0: Uh, I mean, in, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I guess for one thing, this is a part of public radio with which I am less familiar. And, and that's why I especially enjoyed this, this part of the book, because uh, I felt like I was meeting a lot of people for the first time. Who were some of your favorites?
1: Yeah, well, the, they, they had it, it was a lot of fun to talk to folks on the music end of things. Uh, we've married McPartland, who's been doing her show, Piano Jazz, for I think more than 30 years now. And Fred Child, he's with NPR, but he, he's with their cultural programming, hosting Performance Today. Uh, Bill McLaughlin of St. Paul Sunday, Um, of course, people on the entertainment side, Michael Feldman who hosts What Do You Know? Um, Let's see, Kurt Anderson who does this great show called Studio Three Hundred and Sixty that's that's gaining audience and gaining stations. Um, Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I mean, I think for me, I was initially attracted to public radio because of the cultural programming, and um, then I ended up on the news end, like so many of us, and. um, but I think I still had a lot invested in getting those voices into the
0: book. Michael Feldman, of course, is a product of Wisconsin Public Radio. And yes. uh, so it's it's especially interesting and uh, t- to read uh, what you have to say about him. And, and in particular, kind of the interesting relationship which he has had over the years with, with other programs and other people like Garrison Keillor and a Prairie Home Companion. Michael Feldman has been uh, sort of an interesting... Uh, Somewhat maybe acidic alternative to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. He he does this thing. I, I think it's I think it's a good deal for show. But you know, there's also like everything we do for show. There's also something deeper than that. You know, he he likes to set up a sense of rivalry and uh, play with this idea that he's the other public radio show from the Midwest. And of course, I'm referring to the rivalry he has with Garrison Keillor, host of A Prairie Home Companion. Um, the two are sometimes confused. You know, one could argue that, that Michael lives in Garrison's shadow. The shows couldn't be more different as far as I'm concerned. You know, Garrison Keeler is a, a, a scripted variety show for the most part, though his monologues are from the top of his head. Um, Michael Feldman, just, he kind of gets up there and improvises. There's very little. There's kind of a basic organization to the show, and then and, but a lot of it is just him... Riffing off of the people in his audience, which is which is really fun. But he he'll mention Garrison and and you know knock on his show or uh, if one of it I think the show I went to one of his guests was um, on the phone from St. Paul and he said oh I wonder if he's going to be on Garrison's show tonight maybe we scooped him you know just <laughs> just kind of nudging at that issue um, and then of course um, several years ago National Public Radio. Uh, created a show called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me with a suggested airtime exactly opposite What Do You Know's. Um, and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is uh, a show with a, um, a host who's Jewish, and also it's a, it's a quiz-oriented show. So it has those two things in common with What Do You Know, and Michael Feldman tossed off some comment um, to a, a trade publication like, oh, what a brilliant idea, you know, who could have thought of this before? Mm. Um so you know, so he likes to elbow those things in the public radio world and point to the rivalries and um, you know uh, try and distinguish himself. But part of what distinguishes him is his his sense of uh, you know creating himself as like a, a fun host with like a slight edge of, of being neurotic. And part of being neurotic is mm-hmm. being very aware of. Of who's trying to to tear him down or compete with
0: him. Right. Well, and and a little sunnier face of that same thing. I've always enjoyed the running gag on Car Talk when Tom or Ray Maliazzi will, you know, have one of their sign off lines about, you know, and and though it keeps Nina Totenberg up for sleepless nights to to admit it, this is NPR. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, uh, this awareness that public radio. Is is more than what do you know? It's more than car talk. It's it's this whole universe, and uh, and and sometimes they make kind of interesting bedfellows with one another.
1: Oh yeah, I mean people are constantly calling this book the NPR book, and that couldn't be further from the truth. There's a lot of people from NPR in it, but it's a it's public radio. It's it's a system wide thing, and a lot of people don't understand that NPR is not you know it's gotten this whole thing where it's become like scotch tape there are kinds of tape there are kinds of clear tape that are not scotch tape um just as, just like there are public radio shows that have nothing to do with national public radio hmm.
0: as you uh explored these these uh various personalities tell us about maybe one or two who were strikingly surprising to you i mean in person if there was anybody who was who was surprisingly different from their persona over the air? Or by and large, did you feel like uh, t- to meet these people in-, in person was to meet the person that, that you encounter over the air?
1: Um, you know, that, that word comes up on occasion of surprise. And I think, you know, in many cases I didn't, have expectations. I was simply curious, especially the people who hadn't been written about a whole lot. I think there are certain things that surprise me. Does um, your station air St. Paul Sunday?
0: Uh, no, but what no, okay. uh, we used to, uh, years ago, with Bill McLaughlin.
1: You mean. Yeah, yeah, he's... I, I don't want to go into it too much if your listeners aren't going to be familiar with him, but what surprised me about him? I mean, I'd read a little bit about his personal story. I knew that he was a very a very engaged, active person. He composes, he conducts, he does this show. He actually has another public radio show, or actually another radio show um, distributed by the Fine Arts Network going on now as well. Um, And you think of these people as like, okay, if they can give you 20 minutes, you're happy. Uh, But in fact, he's a very kind of fluid, open person in that, you know, I went to see him in his apartment in New York and he just kind of opened up his whole afternoon to me, and we talked there for a couple of hours, and then we took a walk through the park, and he told me, you know, I do this every day. I go play Frisbee and watch the boats. And, um, and the openness of that afternoon, the sense that we were really together to get to know one another so that I could write this chapter, but it, it went deeper than just, you know, um, an interview. He let me hang out with him. And that was surprising because I always think of these people as kind of nickel and diming their time so that they can accomplish everything that we know they accomplish. Hmm. But in fact, they can kick back and hang out. And it didn't happen a lot, but it happened a couple of times, and it was a lot of fun.
0: How delicious for you. It was. It was great. I'm actually really happy to finish with Bill McLaughlin in that he's uh, someone whose work I tremendously admire. And one of the things which I think he does so well, it occurs to me that other people within public radio do this also, is that uh, as one listens to him communicate over the radio, there is this beautiful fluidity and elegance, and yet at the same time, he is uh, enormously down-to-earth, and uh, there is this sort of wonderful, fresh, straightforward quality to the way he communicates, Uh, and I find that combination to be absolutely brilliant and, and irresistible.
1: Yeah, he he is a wonderful communicator, and he really feels a mission in all of this, that he wants people to feel comfortable with classical music. Um, He knows that especially contemporary classical music is very baffling to a number of people who would otherwise consider themselves well-educated or cultured. Um, And he wants to to be a go-between to really um, get people into the music.
0: And I guess, likewise, many of the journalists you spoke to also, uh, in a sense, seek a a, a similar sort of thing, although we think about public radio listeners as being, by and large, a a well-educated audience, that on the other hand, uh, we're talking about journalists who are trying to probe into profound depths uh, some of the most important and complex issues of our time, and yet not in a way where you sort of feel like you need a doctorate to to turn on your radio and, and listen. I mean, uh, they work very hard to do what they do in a way that will connect powerfully with, with actually a wide range of, of listeners.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that is exactly what they do. And if, if they don't do it, all their work is wasted. You know, if they put together a report and no one can understand it, it, it wouldn't work. So part of the, the prominence they've ob- ob- obtained is um, being great communicators.
0: The book, again, is called Public Radio Behind the Voices. It's published by CDS Books, and, again, it features profiles of uh, many of the most important figures in public radio, in news and information, in talk and entertainment, and in music, with an interesting bibliography uh, at the end, which uh, uh, allows you to, to seek out even more information about uh, uh, these people and their great work. The author, once again, Lisa A phillips and the book published by cds books lisa phillips i so enjoyed our conversation today and loved reading your book i learned so much and uh i look forward to uh maybe talking with you again and thank you again for joining me today on the morning show
1: thanks for having me so much it was really fun to talk to you